The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. I don't know about that extraordinaire stuff. Um, I figure, you know, if the Lord can speak through Balaam's donkey, he can speak through a retired fireman, so uh, there's that. But uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Amen? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that this is a matter of first importance. He said it is by this gospel that you're saved. If you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. So what is this matter of first importance? Well, he says that it's Christ that died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Indeed, he appeared to Peter and to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. And at Paul's writing, he says, most of them are still alive. You can go ask them yourself. They've seen the resurrected Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the best attested, most well-documented event in all of human history. There has been more written about the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other subject in the history of mankind. The Bible, for some reason, can be very, very confusing to people, though. Have you noticed that? So much to the, the point that um, I hear people say, you know, the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. Or the God, or the Old Testament has really nothing to do with the New Testament. Actually, both of those statements have, couldn't be farther from the truth. So why is Scripture so confusing to so many people? Well, there's lots of reasons. Humanly speaking, the Bible was written at a, by approximately 40 different writers from very diverse backgrounds over the period of about 1,500 years on three different continents across vastly different cultures amid radically different situations and times. Many of the books are written in literary genres that we as modern readers have no clue about. And so who are these writers? Well, Isaiah is a prophet, Ezra is a priest, Matthew is a tax collector, John was a fisherman, Paul was a tent maker, Moses, David, shepherds, Luke, a physician. All of these guys had their own problems. But when God used them in this capacity, they now have their own testimonies as well. So Scripture, despite by being penned by these 40-some different authors over 15 centuries, it does not contradict itself, and it contains no errors. All these authors all present different perspectives, yet they all proclaim the same message, one true God, the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the only one way of salvation, Jesus Christ. There is no other name given unto heaven by which people are saved. He is the way, he is the truth and he is the life. This is the most wrung out, dissected, picked apart, examined, argued, 
tried in every kind of human court or arena there is on earth. This, there's not a single document more argued over and more studied, more talked about and written about than the Bible. So who wrote the Bible? Ultimately, God did. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the Bible was literally breathed out by God, that God used, that God superintended these human authors of the Bible so that while using their own writing styles, their own personalities, their own experiences in human words, in human times, they still recorded exactly what God intended to communicate. The Bible was not dictated by God. Rather, it was perfectly guided and entirely inspired by God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I want to show you a picture, and this might be the most amazing scripture graphic you'll ever see. And what you're looking at, <clears throat> this represents 63,779 cross-references in scripture. Not only prophecies, but in the New Testament, where Old Scriptures or Old Testament Scriptures are referenced. The bar graph that runs along the bottom represents every chapter in the Bible, starting with Genesis, ending in Revelation. And you can see all of the little legs. Well, those are all chapters, and this one chapter, Psalm 119, 176 verses, the longest chapter in the Bible. And you can see the flow as it begins in Matthew. And he's just 11 times in the first two chapters, he's talking about the fulfillment of prophecy. You get over to the book of Hebrews, and there is just volcano of eruption proving from Scripture that Jesus is the Christ. All of that, believe it or not, done entirely without computers. Do you think the Old Testament has anything to do with the New Testament? But there's actually a much deeper reason why the Bible, why Scripture, why the Old Testament specifically is so confusing to so many people, and it's not a literary reason, it's not a historical reason, it's not a cultural reason. The reason why the Bible can be so confusing to people, why, in fact, they are, are completely inaccessible in their minds is because there's a veil over it. Because people are actually blinded from seeing the glory and the light and the goodness and the truth that is the Word of God. They're blinded by the enemy. They're blinded by their own sin. They're blinded by spiritual oppression. They're blinded often by their own choices, their desires, their frame of mind. A veil, a blanket, a shield, a cover lies over their Bibles. It lies over the Word of God. It lies over their hearts, over their eyes, over their ears. They asked Jesus, Jesus, why do you speak to people in parables? And in Matthew 13, he said, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, and though hearing they do not hear or understand, in verse 14 he says, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6. 
where Isaiah was quoting Jesus. So this is Jesus quoting Isaiah who was quoting himself. The word became flesh. He goes on in verse 15. He said, for this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes. They might hear with their ears or understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. So what does it mean to say that there is a veil over our Bibles, over Scripture, over our hearts, over eyes and ears, and how only through Christ can that veil be removed? And so basically my thesis in this this morning is that no matter how hard we try to read our Bibles, no matter how hard we try to engage with Scripture, unless we turn face to face with Jesus and see Him in all of Scripture, unless the Holy Spirit allows us to see Him, enables us to see Him, unless we allow the Holy Spirit to show us the glory of Christ in all of these Scriptures, we will always read the Scriptures with a veil over it. Only in Christ is it taken away. So what about this veil? 2 Corinthians chapter 3 deals with this very specifically. And Paul is writing the Corinthian church and he's bringing up an event that happened with Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. And he is saying that when Moses was, was given the Ten Commandments, this is on Mount Sinai, and I won't go through the whole story, but it's in the midst of this in the second set of tablets, that Moses says, if you're not going with me, God, I, I don't want to go. I want you to prove to me that you're with me. And Moses is so bold so many times. You know, when, when the Israelites sin, you know, God's like, man, I'm wiping them out right now. And Moses is like, nope, nope, remember your promise, God. You don't want to be a liar. Moses walks up to God and says, if I need you to prove that you're with me. So now show me your glory. So, so God says, okay, I'll do it. He said, I know this place, and there's this crack in this rock. And he said, but you can't see my face and live. But I'm going to put you in that crack. I'm going to put my hand and go back by you, and then I'll move my hand, and you can see the backside of me. God did exactly what Moses asked. Moses got exactly what he wanted, but he couldn't handle it. He fell to the ground on his face and worshiped God. It's a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so he is bringing this up and he is saying that when Moses came down from that mountain, he's like, hey guys, I have to show you these commandments. And they're like, no way, get back. We don't want to come near you. So Moses tells them what he needs to tell them and then he puts a veil on his face. And when he goes back into the tent of meeting, he takes the veil off, talks to God, comes out, and he's glowing. But Moses did not know he was glowing until they came out of the presence of God. And he is saying if that ministry of the law, of the letter, came with glory, even though it was passing away, how much more glorious is going to be the ministry of the Spirit? And in verse 14, chapter 3, 2 Corinthians he makes the point that he says their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed. 
because only in Christ is it taken away. Verse 15, even to this day when Moses is read, there's a veil covering their hearts. He goes on in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, he says, the God of this age, little g, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The image of the invisible God. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and we have beheld his glory. 2 Corinthians verse 3 and verse 16, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. I love Luke 24 and the road to Emmaus. This is the afternoon that Jesus was resurrected. The resurrection changes everything. There's two gentlemen that are walking a seven-mile road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and Jesus appears among them. He wasn't there, and then he's there. And they don't know who this guy is. Hey, what are y'all talking about? They're like, man, are you the only one in Jerusalem that didn't see what just happened? Have you watched the news? Have you checked your news feed? No, tell me all about it. So they tell him all about it, how everything, we thought he was the one, but now all hope is lost. We're supposed to be talking about hope in action. And Jesus finally opens up and he said, how slow of heart you are to not believe everything that has been written about the Son of Man. So beginning with Moses, all the law, all the prophets, all the Psalms, he explains to them every scripture that is about him. Everything's by him, everything's for him. In a seven-mile stretch of road, how I would have loved to have heard that sermon. And then he gets there, and they're like, they constrain him, and they're like, man, abide with us. Don't leave. And they invite him inside. And then he opens their minds to the Scriptures. One, our hearts burning inside us, and he breaks bread. Breaks bread. I'll not eat again of this until the kingdom comes. Guess what, folks? We're in the kingdom They don't stay there overnight, even though it's late and dark. They run seven miles back to Jerusalem and say, listen, we, you're not going to believe what just happened to us. Does, does the Scriptures really do this? Are they that powerful? Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword to the point of dividing joint from marrow. What the Word of God is designed to do is to split you in half, expose you, shove you in a corner, and make you choose. And it doesn't stop there. It says it judges the thoughts and the intentions of the human heart. We think we read the Bible. We don't. The Bible reads us. These are not just ink on pages. It, Jesus said that these are spirit and they are life. 
and that heaven and earth is going to pass away, but these words, they're never going away, ever. And so when you read the book of Acts, what do you see Paul do every single time he enters a new town or a new region on these missionary journeys? Ephesus, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, wherever he goes, he goes to wherever people are meeting, and he does one thing. He goes in, and I can just see him. He's got the roll of Isaiah, scroll of Isaiah under his arm, and he sits down, and he flips it open and says, okay. Isaiah 7, 17. For the Lord himself will give you a sign. There's very few of those in scriptures. This is an undeniable, indisputable fact. A virgin is going to give birth to a son. We all know where babies come from, right? This cannot happen humanly. This is something that the God is doing to say what he's going to do. And the Lord himself will give you a sign. He will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, a son is given. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Oh, wait, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His kingdom will never end. And by the way, it's going to be the zeal of the Lord that accomplishes this and all the free will of mankind will never be able to have anything to do with it. How did God accomplish this? Well, let's go to Isaiah 53. He was this proto-evangelium, this first gospel. He's going to die on a Roman cross. Pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. And by the way, a Roman cross won't even exist for another 750 years at the time that Isaiah wrote it. But then Paul would say, you know, I don't know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'm not even going to talk about anything else lest I empty the cross of its power. Why did Paul do this? It's all based on one single question that Jesus asked. In Mark 8, 29, Jesus asked a question that rings across the fabric of humanity, and it always will. And that is, who do you say that I am? It's always going to come down to this question. And people will be like, they ask, the, he asked the disciples, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some they say that you're Elijah. And he's like, I don't care about that. Who do you say that I am? Well, you know, you may say, who do you say that I am? Well, Ben said this, and Brett said that, and some idiot fireman said this. He's like, I don't care about that. No, this is between you and me. We're going to stand before the throne of God and answer this question, who do you say that I am? This has always been and will forever be the issue. Is Jesus who he says he is? Is he God in the flesh or is he not? In the world of Islam, he's just another prophet. In the world of Jehovah's Witnesses, he's a good man, but he's not God. In the world of Mormonism, you can, yeah, he's a God, but you can be a God just like him. In the world of Christianity, is he God or is he God Jr.? 
Is he less than the Father? The deity of Christ is the issue. In Islam, the very first thing a child is taught from birth is that Allah is one and he can have no begotten. Islam begins and ends as an attack on the deity of Christ. It's built and designed to do that. So, in our ministry in Athens, as we engage people coming out of Islam, this is the only thing I do. I reason from Scripture about one question, who is Jesus? Is he who he says he is? When I was a fireman, I was down on the main mall. It was called Bartlett Square in Tulsa. We had some kind of public event going down. And I've got my crew, and we're doing our thing. And I look over, and there's a homeless guy sitting over there that has found a broken guitar in a dumpster. It's got one string on it. And he's got a jar, and he's made a cardboard sign, and he says, I can play any song, taking requests. And so people are coming up, can you play this song? And he wouldn't even move his fingers. He would just sing this little song, and it wasn't anything what they asked for. And somebody's like, free bird, you know? And he's like, no, and, and, and he played the same song. So whatever you ask him, he would play any song, but he would give one song. I am like that. Brett asked me to speak on hope in action. I'm like, sure, I can talk about that because I already know the song that I'm going to play. I'm a one-string banjo. You asked me to speak on any subject, it's going to be about Jesus because everything is by him and for him. He's in all and through all. Every scripture points to him. I can preach Jesus on any page, off any page in this Bible. Okay, I'm ready to start the sermon now. Is that all right? <laughs> Easter is a big deal. We started by saying that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. What was last Sunday? Anybody know? Pentecost. Pentecost means 50, 50 days after Easter. One of the coolest things about Easter, it's not like any other holiday. We know exactly when it happened because of the calendar. We know exactly 50 days ago, God poured his spirit out on all flesh. The church was born that day. Happy birthday, church. The apostles were clothed with power from on high. In John 14, John 15, John 16, Jesus tells us in explicit detail what the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he would do something. And he would do things that had not been done before. He would teach us all things. He would remind us of everything that Jesus had spoken. He would bring glory to Jesus by taking from what is Jesus and making it known to you and me. He said, on that day when the Holy Spirit comes, you will realize that I'm in you and you are in me and we are in the Father. You're going to have a realization. But in John chapter 16 and verse 8, he said the Holy Spirit would do something and it is convict the world of sin. Why am I saying all this? What has changed? If the resurrection changed everything, 
What has changed in the way that God interacts with mankind since the Holy Spirit has been poured out and is active in this world? Do you think about it? I'm raising all kinds of theological questions that Ben and Brett are going to have to deal with for the next six months. Something's different. Because in Romans 1 and 19 and 20, Paul said that all people know of God. God has made it so plain to them so that people are without excuse. Nobody is going to be able to stand before God and say that they did not know. Everybody in every culture at every point in history is worshiping something. Why? Because they're created in the image of God and they're designed and built to do one thing and that is worship their creator. And they're looking at idols and everything else, trying to meet that need from the outside in. So we're not talking about that. We're saying that God is doing something that has not been done in the past. He is now convicting people. What brought you to Christ? Ultimately, to really get real with Jesus? You were convicted to leave the things of this world and to run into the arms of Jesus Christ, your whole world had to fall apart. You had to see the framework of your life come apart to see the truth and the reality of Jesus. This is why in Acts 17 and verse 30, Paul is standing before this Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Athens. And he said, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. John the Baptist, there he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. And he says in verse 31, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice through Jesus. And they're arguing with Jesus, and they said, you're claiming to be God in the flesh. Don't you know that God is going to judge you? And Jesus is like, I don't think you understand who you're talking to. The Father judges no one. In fact, all judgment has been given to the Son so that the sovereignty of God in action, all will honor the Son in exactly the same way as they honor the Father. I'm the creator. I created you, and I'm going to sit on the seat of judgment, Matthew 25. He has given proof of this, this is verse 31b, to everyone in the world by raising him from the dead. The resurrection changes everything. It is the single most attested event in human history, a sign. Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus said he came to do one thing, to seek and to save the lost. And guess what? He is still seeking, and he is still saving. We think we're building the kingdom. We think we're building the church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said he will build his church. In the last 11 years, I have never led anyone to Christ that Jesus himself had not already found and revealed himself to them in one form or another. We don't go out and find them. We don't do any evangelism. We just deal with those that come through our front door. Somehow they find their way to us and they're looking for Jesus and this is why we've adopted the phrase, we are looking for those who are looking for Jesus. 
On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 16, Peter stood up and he said, this is exactly what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. This is Joel chapter 2. So many of you have heard about these stories of these Muslim refugees having these dreams and having these visions. And some of you have read books on the subject. And I'm here to tell you that about 80% of the thousands we have personally seen come to Jesus have already had some sort of encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. And so we go into churches and I'll tell these stories. And it's like, brother, I'm not sure I believe that. And I'm like, well, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm just trying to tell you. And he's like, well, we don't believe in any of that hokey pokey spirit stuff. I actually had a guy say that to me. And I said, well, brother, here's the thing. When you see this happen a few thousand times over about a decade, it begins to get your mind around the fact that Jesus is God and he is sovereign, and he's going to do exactly what he wants to do, and he doesn't need your theological permission to get it done. <laughs> yeah. Jesus said, ask. It's going to be given to you. If you seek, if you're looking, you're going to find. If you knock, that door is going to fly open, and you know he's going to be staring you right in the face. It's Jesus Christ. I'm not even surprised that he does this because I'll be studying with somebody and we're reading all of these scriptures and it's like, you know, there's just something I just need. They're like Moses. I just need to know. I need proof. I say, well, tonight when you lay down wherever it is you're sleeping, under a tree or in a camp or whatever, you just ask him and he'll come to you. It doesn't surprise me anymore that he does that. It's the speed at which he does that. Because they come back the next morning, I'm, I'm ready. He came to me last night. We're getting baptized today. And we don't talk about baptism. They read the scriptures and they come to me and it's like, I think I need to be baptized. Really? You read that? Because that's exactly what Jesus is telling them. I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of these dreams. There's a, one of the first, uh, actually it was the very first uh, Afghan young man that I baptized into Christ. And we are discussing scripture. And he has uh, been an orphan since he's nine. Uh, he can barely read. He had never held a Bible in his hand. And he said, I think I'm crazy. And I said, why do you think you're crazy? He said, because I had a dream. I said, okay, tell me the dream. And he said, I was in Athens, and for some reason, in the middle of Athens, there's this huge mountain, and the top of it's covered in snow. And I'm like, well, that's cool. I think I'm going to climb this mountain. So I get halfway up the mountain, and I find a snowbank, and I look, and there's two dead bodies laying in the snow. And he's like, I was so scared, because here I am, a refugee in a foreign country, and I'm thinking they're going to think I did this. So what I did is just keep going. And I went to the top of the, of the mountain. And then when I got there, I understood that I just made things worse because now my only escape in between me and that are two dead bodies. 
And he said, I'm trapped. And so he said, I just cried out. And he said, God, help me. And he said, at that moment, there was this blinding light I could not see. And he said, there was this, it looked like a man, and he was dressed in a robe, and he had this golden sash. And his eyes were like laser beams, and his feet glowed. And, and he spoke, and it sounded like some kind of waterfall. And I was like, have you ever read the Bible? He said, no. I said, have you ever heard of the book of Revelations? No. I said, what you just did is describe Revelation 1, 13 through 16. And I'm like the guy, I feel like, I don't believe this. I don't believe in this weird hokey pokey spirit stuff. And it rocks your world. I had a guy come through the door and he had just arrived in Athens, came across Lesbos Island, and he said, I know you, I've seen you. This is long before we were doing any video work. He said, I had a dream about you, and you were teaching some, out of some book in Iran. I'm like, okay, now this is weird. There was a young man named Hamid, who's Afghan, and he came through uh, the door, and he said, I'm looking for a big American named Larry. And I said, I haven't seen him. What do you want? <laughs> he said, I just got here from Istanbul, and a guy gave me his name and said he could tell me about Jesus. So I'm like, you're in the right place. So we sit down and we study, and we're going through all of this. And he said, I have to tell you that I'm not an ordinary Afghan. I'm like, wow, okay, that's a, that's a bold statement. He's like, no, you don't understand. He said, uh, my dad is a Sharia law judge. Uh, he said, I'm a university professor at the University of Tehran. Uh, my grandfather's the third highest ranking mullah in all of Afghanistan. Uh, I've got six brothers and sisters, all of which are doctors, lawyers, other professors. In other words, is an is a Islamic cleric. And he said, I was digging through the basement in the University of Tehran, and I found an English Bible. And I can read English, so I started reading this. I took it home. I smuggled it out of the university in my bag uh, and got it home and started reading it. First night, I had a dream. I left it there. I hid it in my house, went to work, came back, read it again, and he showed up again. I said, okay. And he said, I began to read, and the more I began to understand, and he said, it began to affect the way that I thought and it, the way that I was teaching. And so the university, it's an Islamic university, they began to record my classes. And there began to be pressure applied to me and threats being made on my life. And so I went to my dad, and he said, son, you got to run. They're going to kill you. This was advice from his father. So he ran, and he ran through Turkey, and he got to Istanbul, and he found about some big American named Larry, and he came in, and he's like, I, I need Jesus. So we went to Matthew chapter 10, and I said, I need you to understand what, what I see happening that Jesus said would happen is happening exactly in your life. 
And in verse 34, Matthew 10, he said, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves her son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. These are red letters. Whoever does not take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever tries to save their life is going to lose it, but whoever loses their life for me, they're going to find it. You see, resurrection life only belongs to those who have died. We baptized him. And he is somewhere in Europe. I talk to him occasionally, but I never know where he's at because there are organized search parties coming out of Afghanistan to try to kill him, to assassinate him. He is a fugitive for Jesus Christ. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are an aroma that brings death. And to the other, we are an aroma that brings life. Did you catch that? There's one aroma with only two possible outcomes. Life or death. Jesus said there's two roads. There's a broad road that leads to destruction. There's a narrow road. And that road leads to life and only a few find it. Life in Christ is a turnstile. It's one at a time. And it answers the question, who do you say that I am? I don't care what everybody around you says. That's what's happening on the big road. You're an aroma. Paul is making the point that you are written on by the Holy Spirit on tablets of human hearts and people read you like a letter. The world, you go out this door, that world squeezes you, and they're only after one thing. They want to see what comes out. So the world squeezes you to make you see your need for Christ. And then when you come to Christ, the world squeezes you to see what's on the inside. Is there transformation or is there not? Who do you say Jesus is? And, Jesus, and, and Paul asks this. He says, who is equal to such a task? to be this aroma that brings life or death? And that's a good question. He says, because it's only the ones who are willing to be led as captive slaves to Christ. It is only those who are willing to be used like a broken vessel, like a rag mop by God to spread the aroma that brings life or death. Who do you say that I am? And he is using the evil of man to fulfill his entire mission of seeking and saving the lost.
and we think it's just going on in Afghanistan or Iran. He is using the current situation in every country, in every situation on this planet today, including the United States, to bring a sword. Not peace. We're all praying for peace. He's like, I didn't come to bring peace. I'm going to shove you in a corner and make you choose. And I'm going to do that outside the kingdom, and I'm going to do that inside the kingdom. And the pressure gets higher and higher, and it all comes down to one question, who do you say that I am? Jesus said, if you belong to me, you are salt. You are light. You are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You don't light a candle and put it under a bushel where no one can see it. Jesus is bringing people to you all the time, every day, everywhere you go. He is seeking and saving, and they are coming to you looking for one thing, and that's Jesus Christ, and you, all you have to do is say, this is who you're looking for. Be smelly for Jesus. Don't cover what he's trying to do in your life. There's three things I want you to take away from this. Number one, give Jesus permission. Give him authority over your life. Every morning you get up and you make your list. I've got this meeting at 9. I have another one at 11. I've got a lunch thing. I've got a 1 o'clock meeting. I've got a Zoom thing. Hold that list up to the mirror every morning before you leave that bathroom and say, Lord Jesus, I give you permission to totally jack up my day. It's his ministry, not yours. You're captive slaves. You have died with Christ. You've been crucified. You no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in you. You have relinquished the right to yourself because he's going to bring you somebody that he has prepared and already shown himself to, and all they're coming to you is for one thing, and that's Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Number one, give Jesus permission to wreck your life. Number two, Everybody wants to be a voice in this world. I don't want to be a voice. I got nothing to say. I'm an idiot. Don't listen to me. I want you to hear Jesus. I want to be an echo. I want to look like Jesus. I want to sound like Jesus. I want to use his words that never pass away because my words are nothing. They're white noise in a world that is just screaming, trying to be a voice. Give him permission. Don't be a voice. Be an echo. Any room that you walk into, any grocery store that you go into, you look for Jesus because he is there. I guarantee the darkest, most evil place you can think of, he is there. And he is doing his work. Have eyes to see and ears to hear. Listen for his voice. He is working that room that you're in. Be conscious and looking for the person of Christ. Give him permission, be an echo, look for Jesus. For this is God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He made his light shine in our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. The glorious riches of this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the bride say, come. If you have a need, would you come right now?